Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Martin. Today I'm talking with Kelly Barnes about her retelling of a Japanese fairy tale. In her book, it's called The Crane Husband. Our unnamed narrator, a 15-year-old girl, manages to care for her 6-year-old brother and creative but irresponsible mother, by skipping school and selling her mother's artwork. Her father taught her everything useful before he died. And much like Katniss in Hunger Games, she devotes herself to keeping her small family afloat and dodging a social worker's effort to intervene. The crane husband opens with the arrival of her mother's newest lover, an insolent giant crane that demands every bit of her mother's attention while returning her affection with raucous sex and deep cuts from his razor-sharp beak. From this surrealistic beginning, things get progressively stranger. In some ways, this surreal poetic novella reminded me of Australian author Kathleen Jennings' eerie novella Fly Away, which I've also covered on this channel. There are fatherless children fighting for survival, allusion to ancestral violence, and odd metamorphosis taking place in remote locations. Underneath the inexplicable events lie opposing motivations, the wish to escape both love and duty, fighting with a desire to nurture and care for others. The daughters in the two different novels are left to sort through the wreckage and attempt to make wise decisions. So we're going to start off the reading now. I've got Kelly on the show now, and she's going to tell us a bit about the crane wife. She's going to start things off with a reading. Hi, Kelly. Thank you. And hi, how are you? <laughs> and good. actually, it's the crane husband, which this will come up a lot. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, it is. So it's the crane husband, not the crane wife. Indeed, indeed. And um, uh, we can discuss that later. But I'm going to uh, start reading. Um, uh, just I'm just going to read this little bit from Chapter 3. Great. Our house stood at the very edge of town. It was the last of the old farmhouses, the only one that the conglomerate hadn't knocked over when they bought our farm and the rest of the farms in the area. An electric fence separated our yard from the monocultured fields on the other side, cloned corn in every direction, stretching all the way to the sky. During the summer, the fields hummed and whispered each day. The hum of drones, the surprisingly loud whisper of corn as it grows. Sometimes the whole world rumbled and roared with the sound of the tremendous engines of their driverless tractors and remote control harvesters. We were not allowed to set foot on those fields 
The kids in town who disobeyed this rule ultimately found themselves photographed by the conglomerate Sentinel drones, each equipped with state-of-the-art facial recognition software, and their families were sent stern letters, first with a warning and then with a substantial fine. Our town was situated right where the Driftless Bluffs um, uh, descended into the plains of ancient glacial silt, its acres and acres of rich, flat farmland, all tended to remotely by one guy named Horace, who kept the whole operation going in a room full of computers and readout machines, and who drank too much on Saturday. He wasn't a farmer. He was a technician. No one was a farmer anymore. No one touched the dirt anymore. No one walked through the endless rows, their fingers whispering along the dark green leaves. No one was allowed. Not us, not strangers, not animals. Even the birds weren't allowed. Every day, the drones moved back and forth, back and forth, guarding a world made only for corn. Okay. <laughs> so I think my first question is going to be about the mistake I just made. Uh, <laughs> so originally the fairy tale was called The Crane Wife. Yes. And the title yes. of your book is The Crane Husband. Uh, tell us a bit about the original and how it changed to The Crane Husband. That's a really good question. Um, I didn't come at the story intending to um uh intending to invert the original fairy tale uh i i think about that fairy tale though all the time uh it's been a favorite of mine really since i was a little kid i was you know kind of a fairy tale obsessed kid mm -hmm. uh and um but the original story is uh is one of um that uh that pressure that women have to alter themselves in order to um, uh, uh, to uh, please the men in, the, in, in, in their lives, to assuage the men in their lives, to keep themselves from danger, to keep themselves attached. Uh, it's the story of a um, uh, a farmer who uh, finds a, an injured crane and brings it into his home uh, and um, uh, and nurses it back to health. In some of the stories, he's a farmer. In some of the stories, he's a fisherman. In some of the stories, he's a um, it's, he's a weaver of uh, fishing nets. Uh, but it's all it all starts out the same. Uh, a man finds a um, an injured crane, brings it into his home, and nurses it to health. And eventually, it does restore itself to health, and he takes it outside, and the crane flies away. Uh, and shortly later, a beautiful woman arrives at his home, saying, "I would like to marry you." And he's like, "Awesome!" <laughs> and uh, and so he takes her into his home, and she gives him one rule that uh, he needs to. Uh, create a room for her with a loom in it where she can do her work and that she cannot be disturbed. And he says, that's fine. And she goes in there and she, uh, she weaves and she weaves and she weaves this beautiful, beautiful fabric that he takes to the market and sells. And, uh, and as a result, uh, he lifts himself out of poverty and then he lifts himself from just lifted out of poverty to the middle class and eventually he becomes rich. And, um, and she just, 
spends her days locked in this room, weaving and weaving and weaving. Uh, and, and they are very comfortable and they're very happy for a while. But after a while, he becomes more and more aware of what he does not have and what he has not gained and what is, and the, the limits of the wealth that she's able to provide for him. Uh, and as a result, he starts to become, uh, uncomfortable and then, um, greedy and then annoyed. Uh, and he starts to berate her that her, uh, the fabrics that she makes are not quite as beautiful as they should be or quite as fine or maybe she's going slow on purpose. And eventually he can't stand it and, uh, he breaks into the room, violates the one rule, which is you can never do in a fairy tale. And, uh, and he sees a crane who has been pulling the feathers from her body uh, to keep herself, to make herself human again, uh, and mm. using those feathers to weave this fabric. And she looks at him sadly, and she flies away. The end. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very sad story, but it's something that I have um, uh, thought about, you know, ever since I was young, and, and, the, and who's, a story whose meaning and impact for me has changed over time. I understand it now as a, you know, uh, 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 as a woman sort of, you know, um, at the close of my 40s, I see that story differently now than I did as a teenager when um, I probably first encountered the story, you know, as a a young child, but thought about it a lot as a teenager. And uh, and so it's transformed for me over time. And uh, and once I started writing, I, I I realized that what I was writing it isn't an adaptation really of the original source text, but rather an echo, I think, of it. And uh, and I was seeing how the story was echoing to the story that I was making. Um, and so once I became aware of that, um, uh, I started to listen more intently, I think, to the original story and um, uh, and listening to how that um, uh, how that echo sort of manifested in the story that I was writing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So we have the crane husband. He's a male. Yeah. Uh, so he's introduced to us. He's wearing shoes. They don't fit yeah. his claws. And he's wearing glasses. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And he sits down for meals of human food, even though it comes out that he's actually gobbling down frogs outside and Uh eating uh, the narrator's brother's hamster. So this crane isn't accommodating at all. The original female crane went to great lengths uh, to hide the fact that she was a crane and Mm -hmm. tried to uh, promote her husband's wealth. This crane... Why is he even wearing shoes and glasses? Right. Because he doesn't right. care. I mean, no, he doesn't care at all. And so, and that, and that, it becomes a question mark in the in the story, um, uh, because of course we're not seeing this through the mother's point of view. Mm-hmm. We're seeing this through the point of view of the daughter of the fifteen-year-old who is the center of this family. Uh, and so, um, so she cannot know what her mother knows, and she cannot see what her mother sees. 
um, uh, does her mother see this person as a crane or does she see him as something else? Is, or is she trying to place something on him that doesn't, uh, that doesn't belong? Or is she trying to, um, uh, uh, again, accommodate to him, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, and, and living out some, someone else's delusions? We don't know at all. All we know is that the mother is not listening. Um, and is, um, uh, and is forcing her children to, uh, accept a, um, a reality that the children know right away does not fit. And it is that sort of like insistence on, um, I, this is the world that you must now accept, mm-hmm. um, I, that, uh, that really puts them on a perilous path, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, um, uh, and so, the, and the thing is, so, um, uh, I mean, that's that's one of the things that sort of has has struck me about uh, about the original story is that you know cranes are mean. Yeah, you know, if you see a crane eating like hunting, like whoa, they are ruthless, ruthless hunters. But mm. not only that, um, you know, once I remember once driving through Wisconsin, and uh, um. Actually, maybe I was in Nebraska. I can't remember. Uh, there are these, there's different, you know, a bunch of different species of cranes that, um, that migrate through the Midwest, um, uh, following different migratory paths, uh, typically following rivers. And, uh, um, I remember, uh, driving past a, a farm that had, um, uh, migrating cranes resting. They'll, they'll rest in great big groups. Uh, particularly in, in, uh, in Nebraska, the, migra- the migration of the sandhill cranes is really an extraordinary thing to see. Uh, it was over thousands and thousands of birds. And I remember once looking out and, um, I, and seeing a, um, a group of, of cranes um, attack one of their own. Hmm. And I have no idea why. Um, I don't know how typical this kind of behavior is. Um, uh, but they tore her to pieces. Um, oh. And watching this from the car, right? And um, and so there is this, um, uh, you know, whenever you have this um, uh, this particular type of story in folklore of um, of the animal spouse, and there's all kinds of um, examples of the animal spouse that go, you know, sort of like cross culturally because you know uh, fairy tales they migrate, right? Just like mm-hmm. <laughs> as birds do. <laughs> Uh, and, um, uh, we have, you know, lots and lots of, uh, animal, uh, spouse stories. We have lots and lots of specifically bird spouse stories. Uh, and there is always this element of, of danger because, um, uh, you know, you have this intersection of, um, uh, uh, the way in which we sort of expect and insist that, um, uh, human life, uh, should uh, unfold in this way. Human relationships should unfold in this way. And it is not always like that in the animal world. And so, um, it's those places of, um, uh, discrepancy and, um, uh, and, and, um, you'll have to excuse me. I'm, I'm recovering from a brain injury. And so sometimes I lose words a little <laughs> bit. Uh, uh, but dissonance, um, uh, that I think, um, uh, create these places for tension in the story. Um, so anyway, yeah, that was kind of my question. Uh, you speak of the element of danger with an animal spouse, yeah. and uh, yet yeah, I, I may be a little <laughs> older than most of the people listening to the show, but I remember James Thurber, who used to uh, 
draw mm-hmm. cartoons and he would draw these kind of animal hybrids and so when you think about a crane wearing glasses it's almost like a uh-huh. cartoon but yeah, yeah i think right away the sinister aspect of the crane is apparent and right. i was wondering do you think that you conveyed that through the dissonance that you built up uh by making the readers uncomfortable or how did you pull that off to not make I, it go into cartoonish uh that's a really good question i'm not totally sure i mean <laughs> i'm not um uh, I, I'm, I i'm always really impressed by the writers who uh have uh, this great deal of intentionality and planning and um, uh, uh, and sort of intellectualization of their work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's super admirable, and I'm amazed at them all the time. I'm not like that at all. I I I tend to um, uh, write as an act of discovery, but also um, as this place of curiosity that my brain has brought me to this. Place my imagination has brought me to this place, and uh, and primarily my job is to pin the experience down and to bring that experience to the reader. And so I'm not totally sure how it worked. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I I don't. I mean, I think if I'm to think about it really like specifically, and and I wasn't doing this with um uh, with any stated intention at all. But I think that one of the reasons why it works um, is is because uh, it's not the crane that's terrifying. It's not the hat that's terrifying. It's not his claws coming out of the um, uh, out of the shoes that is terrifying. What is terrifying is uh, is the fact that. The, you have this kid who is staring at their mother, and their mother is not um, operating with the same rules of reality that she is. The mother is is saying things that are demonstrably untrue, and she knows it. That crane is not my father. That crane has never been my father, and yet my mother is insisting that I call him father. My mother is is not recognizing that she's just walked into the house with this crane, this crane that is hurting her, right? Um, yeah. And it's it's the it's the 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 refusal to say to speak to these um uh these verifiable facts and reality, and to um uh, uh to insist that things that um uh to to insist that um a these imaginary things are true and these very clearly real things are are not true at all, right? That's the frightening thing. I think the mother is the frightening thing then. Yeah. As you said, mm-hmm. they're in a perilous situation. They've actually been in a perilous situation yeah. ever since the real father has died, but the daughter, yeah. our narrator, has been able to manage it until now. So right. the mother has abdicated responsibility most of her life. Yep. She yeah. First, her husband yep. looked after the kids, and he seemed yeah. to have had a premonition that things were going to go badly. He prepared his daughter, who's telling the story. Right. Uh, he showed her how to do accounting, load a gun, take care of a lot of other things. So yeah. I, I kind of wanted to explore the relationship between the mother's unwillingness to cope 
and the series of abusive relationships that she seems drawn to. How do those two things tie together? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, the thing about um, uh, generational trauma and generational abuse is um, is that I do think that it um, uh, it interrupts um, uh, a person's ability to um, uh, uh, to to know what normal looks like, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and to, and to, ins- uh, and to know what healthy looks like and to know what safety looks like. Uh, and in fact, um, one of the problems is that when, um, when you grow up in chaos, um, uh, chaos feels safe to you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you grow up with dysfunction, dysfunction feels safe and normal to you. Uh, and, and in fact, as human beings, we are, pretty scared of change, uh, that change feels somewhat dangerous. Um, and, and so, um, and so you see this mom who, um, uh, you know, we have all of these, um, uh, uh, hints and intimations that, um, uh, that she has also, um, uh, grown up with chaos and probably violence too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that is normalized in a very, um, uh, primal part of her. Uh, and, um, and so, uh, and so because she is accustomed to chaos, because she, um, uh, feels safe with chaos, uh, she, um, she becomes inured to it and is, and is really unable to see, uh, the effects that it's having on her children. But from the kid's point of view, that is also true, right? Um, mm-hmm. there are, um, uh, supports available. There's help available. Uh, and yet all of those seem so scary to our, to our dear narrator who, um, uh, um, uh, who is only, whose only thought is to keep this reality alive, to keep this reality, um, uh, going and, um, and to protect her family at all costs, even if by doing so, she's actually putting her family at risk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I, I have an extremely dangerous individual um with them they um have probably had previous dangerous individuals but that seemed okay to her because she knew they wouldn't stick around right well that's not safe (laughs) (laughs) nobody is surrounding in this environment at all uh and yet it's that um uh you know that we become accustomed to um uh really extraordinary things and we become accustomed to harmful things all the time, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and and we um, uh, and I mean I I think that that was um, you know that's been um, uh, people's concerns about um, uh, you know these like you know fairly devastating alterations in the culture as we um, uh, become inured to violence and we become inured to um, uh, 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 sort of nasty behavior um, amongst our politicians and our business leaders and everything else that mm-hmm, like very all confrontational. of these normalized yeah uh, and that's dangerous when these things become normalized that's happened in about the last five six years eight yeah, years yeah, how public discourse too. has changed <laughs> <laughs> so anyway it's um uh, uh, which um you know this is another story that i kind of wrote by accident right um mm-hmm. uh, and i wrote it um uh, you know largely i, I wrote the story in an RV, 
right? Oh, so we're in. The, we we bought this rickety RV, my family and I, mm-hmm. um, uh, because the pandemic was going like crazy, and uh, we had um, our two older kids were going to go to college, um, uh, and we thought, okay, this is how we can get them to school safely. Um, uh, we can like trundle them in this little like virus free bubble across the country, drop one off, drop the other off, maybe see some family. Like my husband's uh, sister, uh, was recovering from cancer. And, mm-hmm. you know, this would be the only way we could see her was outside sleeping in our little like beds on wheels. And so, you know, I, I wrote this story as we were going across the country in this like rattly machine. Um, I, and, um, uh, you know, trying to hang on to this moment of okayness when nothing in the country was okay, right? Um, and, but how, but, but it was remarkable to me, like how quickly we had become accustomed to this, um, uh, uh, to this sense of like sort of general cultural distress, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, Anyway, and uh, and so I, I I didn't really know where the story was going to take me or what I was really doing with it, um, but I know that um, uh, uh, that a lot of what I was trying to sort of make happen was coming from this sort of general sense of uh, dis-ease. Um, anyway, do you think that's well one of the ways uh, or? One of the things that was bubbling underneath when you superimposed a Japanese fairy tale onto a dystopian mm-hmm. landscape, because they're two very different things. You have magical transformations, and then you have uh-huh. this setting where corporations control resources, a giant crane on one hand, and drones and fields of genetically modified crops. Could that have been influenced by your RV journey through uh (laughs) yeah yeah for sure and um a hundred percent i mean because we were driving through farmland you know Mm -hmm. we're driving through you know um wisconsin and then uh illinois and then um uh uh, and then indiana uh and one of the things when you're going through and then and then into you know um uh, uh, kentucky and west virginia and all this other stuff and and um and one of the things when you're driving through farm country is um i mean this landscape gets called dystopian but it's really not i mean it's mostly i mean it's only like a titch beyond where we are right now mm-hmm. right um uh you know the largest um uh, uh single owner of farmland in america is bill gates right uh he owns the majority of the farmland right I now i have no and, idea um, i don't yeah, live in the yeah. states anymore yeah <laughs> uh, uh, i mean uh, maybe not the majority but he is he is the largest single um landowner um of farmland in the united states hmm. and um uh and you know this um uh corporatization this conglomeratization of farmland has been happening for a very long time this monoculture approach to how we plant has been happening for a long time we mm-hmm. already have drones and fields um and so i i i don't even you know consider it particularly dystopian i think that like i mean and in fact the um our, our protagonist says that too you know like i'm not saying this to like blame anybody you know the world changes um and um but it doesn't mean that that's without loss and sorrow too um and um so anyway but but i do um uh, but i do think that you know one of the things that i felt 
while driving through farmland because what you see are abandoned farmhouses. Mm-hmm. What you see are, um, you know, farming towns that really hardly exist anymore um, because there's not enough people there anymore. If you, you know, once once the landowners become larger and larger and larger and once things become more and more automated, which has been happening for decades, uh, you just have fewer people uh, required to maintain the land, uh, fewer people walking the dirt. Um, and uh, And so as a result... Um, uh, you do have this sense of displacement. Um, uh, that sense of displacement is very real. I, I don't know if I would call it dystopian. I would rather call it just sort of um, uh, just a, a commentary on you know where we are and where things are going. And it's not necessarily like a good or bad thing. It's just as if it is the the, um, uh, the situation that we have that is not without loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we've got our 15-year-old narrator. We've been talking about her, the girl. Uh, She's Mm -hmm. the one who tells the story about the mother and the farm. Yeah. And we admire her frustration and courage, but she doesn't have a name. (laughs) Why why doesn't she have a name? Great question. Um, So, again, um, uh, I... um, So much of how I write is, is... intuitive and uh, um and and requires a lot of trust and um i have this i've been working for some some time on this sort of grand unified theory of fiction it's not mm-hmm. there yet um uh but i do see uh the creation of fiction as this collaboration uh between the the front brain and the back brain uh um the front brain that is our um uh uh, where we where we keep our language, right? Where we keep our logic, where we keep our cognition. It's um, uh, it's uh, it's where we um, uh, you know, try to um, uh, find the truth of things. That happens in our prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. Our back brain, our mid mid and back brain is our um, uh, is where language doesn't live, uh, but rather it's um, uh, uh, it's um, it's where we think in feelings. It's where we think in pictures. It's where we think in metaphor. Um, and, and so I've had this experience before where, um, I'll have a story that begins that, um, I don't really know where it's coming from, but I do know that I've been fussing about a thing. I've been fussing about a, um, a question or a thing that I'm trying to to find the truth of. Um, and I'll have this thought or this like, uh, series of thoughts that I will turn around and around and around in my head. It becomes like this, you know, this sand in the oyster, you know, this like uh, place of agitation. Um, and um, and I will know that I will want to write something that sort of deals with this concept in some way. Uh, and But I won't really know what that will look like or what that will be. And then later on, I'll have, um, a, you know, my, my stories typically begin either with a sentence that pleases me or with some kind of, you know, sort of um, uh, 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 disruptive image mm-hmm. that um, I can't really shake. And, I, and I'm just trying to like, okay, well, what is that about? What does that mean? What, do, what, what is my brain trying to tell me? And it takes me a while to realize, oh, this like series of images are actually related to this other like series of thoughts that I was trying to like 
get to the bottom of, you know, that um, the part of my brain that operates in um, an image and metaphor and emotion is talking back to the part of my brain that is um, uh, fussed about a question, right? Uh, and so, um, uh, and so, when I was writing, but but it requires a lot of a lot of trust. And like, okay, well, I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm just going to follow this where this leads, and and hopefully. Um, uh, I'll I'll get some kind of answer, and why it doesn't always happen, <laughs> which is why we don't publish those stories. <laughs> okay, yeah. But uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I do know that um, I did not have the intention to not name her. I only realized at the end that she was never named, and um, and I was and so I asked myself for a while, like, does it work this way? Um, and and I think it does, and I think it does because of the fairy tale aspect of it. Mm-hmm. In fairy tales, there are our characters are rarely named, right? They are, you know, um, uh, uh, one day brother and sister went into the woods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um, you know, it is the, it is the king, it is the farmer, uh, it is the miller, it is the miller's daughter, right? Um, and so uh, and so by not naming her. Um, uh, I, I, I almost feel like we know her better, um, uh, for reasons that I, I can't really articulate, but I know are true. <laughs> know what I mean? Does she have a name in your head or did you always just think of her as the girl? I, you know what? I mean, I don't really name myself, right? When I'm talking or thinking. Oh, um, so she's you. Yeah. You know <laughs> Well, or I mean, she's not me, but like, <laughs> but I was her though, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, I mean, I do think that the act of of um, engaging in fiction, be it reading or writing, is this act of radical empathy that we leave ourselves behind and we uh, fully inhabit uh, this individual, um, and uh, we have this opportunity to live inside somebody else's skin to you know, think as they think, to feel as they feel, to know as they know. Um, and, um, and so, uh, so no, she's not me, but I, I was her while I was writing this story. Mm-hmm. You sure. became her for a time. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, and I hope that that's true of the, of the reader too, right? Um, uh, it is this invitation to inhabit her. Yeah. Well, I kind of thought of her as Katniss, but <laughs> then maybe oh, that's just that's me. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Good work. Yeah. So uh, I was wondering about, you know, we're talking about the artistic process. Yeah. And the mother does seem to be, I mean, it's hard to know because she's seen through the girl's eyes, but the girl is able to promote her mother's work and yeah. many, many people are interested in it. Prices yeah. are high for the work. Uh, the tapestry yeah. sounds beautiful and innovative. However, there's a cost to that process. Yeah. The mother has already been negligent because of the relationship. That plus the work she's doing means she doesn't even notice when the food runs out. The yeah. girl... Later, I don't think I'm giving away too much. Uh, she becomes an artist as well, or she refers uh-huh. to the fact that she derives some income. And she doesn't seem to think much of her own artwork. So I'm, I'm kind of comparing the two. Uh, mm-hmm. Is the mother then a true creative genius? And does that 
somehow have to do with the fact that she can't care for everyday details in addition to the generational abuse that she carries with her. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that, um, uh, I mean, maybe, but, um, uh, I think, I think that, um, I mean, I, I do think that she's a genius, but I do, but I also think that her disconnection and her inability to, um, uh, uh, to really sort of be in the world and be in her children's life and be a competent mm-hmm. adult, uh, actually has nothing to do with her, um, uh, uh, her artwork and her genius. Mm-hmm. It just has to do with her limitations as a human being. Yeah. Um, and, and, and her own sort of sense of brokenness. Um, and, uh, I do think that we make a mistake, I think, of, um, uh, of, you know, uh, putting geniuses on pedestals, um, and, um, and, uh, by making excuse, making excuses for geniuses, mm-hmm. uh, because, um, uh, because it, 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 it reveals something in us where um uh uh that we we think of um uh uh geniusness as being you know somehow uh special or rare and I actually don't think it is um uh i think that i think that genius is common um and i think that it's driven out of people uh but i also think that um uh by making um uh by making excuses for people uh, uh, because of like what they can do or what they can create or with this idea that like they can only create if they are allowed to be non-functional or an asshole mm-hmm. or a, you know, abuser or whatever, uh, that, um, uh, that it actually like, you know, uh, uh, it has this, um, uh, uh, uh this deleterious uh, effect on them. It, 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 it diminishes them uh while as people seek to elevate right uh and um and i think that um yeah in the case of the girl like she might be um uh we we don't really super know what her talents are uh we do know that she's able to make a living um uh from her artwork which is you no know, small thing um uh and um and but we also know that um uh the choices that she's making in her life have have much more to do with you know not wanting to be like her mother that's uh, true and yeah. wanting to um uh 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 wanting to um that that sort of need to escape um so yeah mhm well uh thanks for an interesting conversation what are you working on now well, right now I'm not working on anything. Uh, uh, so as I said, I'm, I'm in recovery from a brain injury, uh, and, um, uh, which has been quite, uh, a journey for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my third major concussion of my adult life, so this is taking longer. Uh, and, um, but I, you know, so I couldn't drive for eight months and, um, uh, you know, sort of had double vision for about another eight, I mean, just a really long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, so, one of the benefits of having a um, uh, a serious brain injury is that uh, uh, I don't experience anxiety anymore. Uh, I used to have anxiety all the time uh, because I can really only hold one thought at, t- at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anxiety is a is a disorder of narration uh, typically, and um, uh, and it requires the ability to be able to stack your thoughts um, in order to um, uh, uh, you know. Um, 
harm ourselves in that way. <laughs> I love that. Anxiety is a disorder of narration. I'm going to write that down. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I have written about both both anxiety and um, and depression as being uh, narrative disorders, um, and and of course because we're narrative thinkers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 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 we, um, uh, we process everything in story, um, uh, from our, uh, our thoughts to how we teach to how we, um, process memory to our dreams to how we plan for the future to how we worry. It's all story, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, um, but because I can only, um, hold one thought at a time, uh, it means that writing fiction is really impossible. Uh, what I can do and what I've been doing is, um, uh, I write one sentence that pleases me, and I write it on a little note card, and then I um, uh, uh, and then I recycle it, which is actually not the first time that I have done this. So um, after the girl who drank the moon came out, I also had a major concussion then as well, and um, and then all kinds of stuff was happening. I you know had one of my children get really sick, and also you know 2016 happened, and I felt like it felt like the world was ending to me. Uh, and I just thought, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to write again. And I almost didn't. Uh, and so what I had done then, um, as I was healing, uh, was that I started writing fairy tales, uh, very short ones just for myself, ones that I would, um, uh, recycle every day. Um, and, um, it was the, it was the process that mattered, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I did actually think that, you know, maybe there wasn't a, a place that, in the marketplace for my voice anymore. Maybe it didn't really matter if I didn't write anymore. Uh, and, <laughs> We've and, and all I had that thought. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, but particularly, I, I just, um, I, I couldn't see my way through uh, this particular sort of um, uh, reordering of my brain at the time. Uh, and, um, but uh, eventually, um, I, I one of the stories, you know, sort of stuck with me, and I kind of wanted to keep going with it. And then, um, and that turned into the ogres and the orphans. And then I had another thing that turned into uh, when women were dragons. And then I had this thing that turned into um, uh, uh, the crane husband. So, despite thinking that I was never going to write again, it turned into a very productive time. So we'll see where we are with this. I mean, it's been a year, and um, I, I'm still not all the way better. Um, but I'm working on it, so um, uh, we'll see. Well, how can we stay up to date if you do get another book published or finish that's one at least? Great, that's a great question. I'm ostensibly on Twitter, but I'll probably leave. I do have <laughs> – um, you can check my uh, my website. I'm not awesome about um, uh, keeping that up to date, but I do my best, uh, and that's at uh, kellybarnhill.com. Uh, and then uh, – but people can also find me on Instagram – which is insufferable blabbermouth um, uh, on Instagram. So insufferable you can find me there. Blabbermouth? Uh, okay. now, uh, insufferable blabbermouth is my uh, is my handle on um, uh, on on Instagram. This gives my children no end to embarrassment. But you know what? It's what I put on there, and that's what I've stuck with. <laughs> and so that's where you can find me there. Okay. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Hey. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Yeah, it was. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy. I've been talking to Kelly Barnhill about the feminist retelling of a Japanese fairy tale in her novella, The Crane Husband. I'm your host, Gabrielle Martin, and I'll be saying goodbye. 
I'm taking an extended sabbatical from podcasting. If you know someone who might be interested in taking my place, please direct them to the information about hosting on the New Books Network website. It's been a great job. Thanks. Thanks.